Good morning. Let's pray. Father, we praise You as the God who created all things. We praise You as the God who is long-suffering through many thousands of years of man's toil and sin. We praise You as the God who made a plan from before the foundation of the world to save man from his sin by perhaps the most unexpected means possible sending your own son to take man's sin upon himself, bearing your wrath on his shoulders. We praise you as a God who did not leave him in the grave, but you raised him from the dead so that all who repent of their sin and trust in him might be saved from their sin and given life in Him to spend eternity with You. In other words, we praise You as the kind of God that we never could have imagined up ourselves. We praise You as the God of the Bible, the God that You have revealed Yourself to be. We thank You that we have occasion to open that Bible now to revel in these things. Many of us, perhaps most of us, are well familiar with the things that we'll read and consider. For those of us for whom that is the case, we pray that this text we'll embrace like an old friend. We'll consider these things anew with great joy, agreeing in our hearts and minds that these things are true. These things are the most important things ever written, the most important things that have ever taken place. Because without these things, we could not have been recreated in the image of Christ. Father, we always ask that your Holy Spirit would help us as we do this. We ask it again. And we do so with great confidence because of how consistently you are kind to us in these things. So please help us. Help us to love the truth. And help us to celebrate in the depth of our being that we serve a risen Lord. We ask this in his name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, as you're finding your place there, please stand with me. And we'll begin this morning by reading the whole chapter. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. 
And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You may be seated. On Thursday evening, Pastor Jason shared with us from Matthew 26 about Jesus' agony on the night before he was Arrested, pointing out Jesus' determination to go to the cross, even in the face of His disciples' unfaithfulness. And then on Friday night, Pastor John showed from Matthew 27 the glorious implications of the cross, that the cross brought reconciliation between sinners and a holy God. The cross pointed to God's wrath for sin. The cross calls for faith in Christ, and the cross points to the hope of the resurrection. And as we walk through passages like these, Matthew 26, 27, 28, not to mention the rest of this Gospel, when we read the Bible in general, when we read Matthew in particular, we are not reading a mere history book. The biblical authors, are they're not like CNN or Fox News pretending to have no endgame. The biblical authors are are not intending to say things to us like, look, we just give the facts. We don't care how you vote. the, The biblical authors, they are intending to lead us to a very specific conclusion and they want us to do something very specific with what they've told us. If we think that Matthew simply wants to convey some historical events, we're not reading very closely at all. Matthew's objective is 
that having recognized these true historical events, we'll follow Jesus Christ in faith and worship Him. Matthew has an agenda as he's writing this gospel. That's clear from the beginning to the end. And certainly here in the final chapter, as Matthew shows that the resurrection divided all of us into two groups, either devoted disciples or deceived deceivers. The resurrection divided us into either devoted disciples or deceived deceivers. That's our big idea this morning, and it's the first point on your notes. Our our scripture reading at the beginning of the service noted a couple of things. First of all, Jesus died and he was buried. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they witnessed this. So we've got witnesses recorded. And second, the Pharisees were concerned that Jesus' disciples might try to come and steal the body so that they could lie and say, hey, look, he rose, just like he said he would. And so the Pharisees didn't want anything to happen to make people think that Jesus was right when he said, I'm going to rise from the dead on the third day. So they wanted a tomb that was guarded in order to prevent that. And that's all important information. The tomb had Jesus' body in it, and it was guarded. Now, these same ladies come on the third day. Look at verse 1 again with me. Now after the Sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now we know what's going to happen. But it's helpful for us to be reminded that they don't. Jesus is dead. And and they watched it happen. And they watched a death that was not like what we might think of as as a hospice kind of death. Somebody assisted in just going off to sleep. I mean, Jesus died on the cross. He died a hard death. And that's difficult to deal with even when it's a a typical loved one. All, All of us who have lost a loved one, we know the sense of that finality. That, that stunned state of mind that, that follows you for, for days, perhaps weeks, months, depending on who it is in your life. That, that, that stunned state of mind ruling every thought where you just, you, you try to think about other things, but what keeps coming back is they're never coming back. And this is the end. The page has been turned and things will never be the same. How much worse would it have been for these two ladies in that this was the Messiah, the coming King, the miracle worker. They had watched Him do these things. He he was the Savior. And beyond that, of course, is just just the, the, the personal thing that they had experienced. He's, he's the most kind Thoughtful, strong, present, welcoming, thoughtful, loving soul that they had ever encountered. And they'll never see him again. I mean, the, the, the sense of loss had to have been nearly unbearable. And, and when you combine that with the fact that he, he's the Messiah, it had to have been 
deeply confusing. Verse 2. And behold, there's a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So much for these ladies to take in. Earthquake, angel, appearance like lightning, clothes white as snow. Leave it right there and you've got a lifelong story to tell. Stop it right there. These ladies are going to have something to tell at parties, right? But the angel isn't there to be the story. The empty tomb is the story. And the angel has two objectives. First of all, to declare and show that Jesus is alive. You know, he's rolling away the stone. That's not to let Jesus out. It's to show that Jesus is gone. Jesus was already gone before he rolled away the tomb. It's to let them in to see that Jesus isn't there. His second objective is to instruct them, go and tell. Go tell everybody about this. He has risen as He said. Jesus predicted this was going to happen. He predicted it in, in Matthew 16, 21, 17, 23, 2019, and who knows how many other times. Can you imagine their minds just trying to catch up with all of this? How, how on earth could they grasp the full import I mean, would there have been, would there have been just the personal import of of the the safety of of his welcoming face, his, his presence, the delightful magnetism of of his kindness, or did did they have any inkling of what this would mean ultimately? Did 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 they, did they understand that that? Jesus' death on the cross for their sin was successful and that His resurrection would mean their life from the dead. Could they piece together any of that? We don't know. Matthew's recounting of this event indicates that he's not just trying to report information. Matthew is not only showing that Jesus rose from the dead, but he is setting up a juxtaposition of two responses to this event. There were two groups at the tomb. It's not just the women, but the guards are there. Two groups go to report what they've seen. And there are two commissions. Two commissions, not one. There's two about what to do with this information. And what we're going to find as we proceed is that this event divides those confronted with it into one of two groups. Devoted disciples or deceived deceiver, deceivers. That should be clear by the time we're done. Now to get there, let's first note that these two groups, they, they, have, they share two broad commonalities. They share two broad commonalities. The first of which is exposure to the same evidence. Exposure to the same evidence. If, if we haven't read chapter 27, we're not expecting the guards. And we may be a bit startled because they aren't mentioned until... Verse 4, after the earthquake, after the angel, the description of his clothes, the rolled stone and everything. 
But because of chapter 27, we know that the guards were there and they were there before the women. So we have the women and the guards, both groups, seeing this spectacle. And as the angel addresses the women in verses 5 through 7, the guards are right there. They hear everything. As the angel is, is saying, Jesus has risen, as he said, come see where he lay. Go tell the disciples. The guards hear all of that. And the rolled stone alone would have moved the guards to look into that tomb. But when the angel says explicitly, hey ladies, it's empty. You better believe the guards would have looked into that tomb. Because they had one job to do. Make sure the dead body stays in the closed tomb. So you know they would have looked in there. And that the guards later reported all that happened to the Pharisees means they saw all that had happened. So both groups, they're exposed to the same evidence. A second commonality is accurate interpretation of the evidence. Both groups accurately interpreted the evidence. How did the women interpret the evidence? We could read verse 8 alone and answer the question. Verse 8, So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. The great joy piece is a dead giveaway. They believe Jesus was raised. And the fact that the disciples showed up at the rendezvous point in verse 16 indicates that the ladies believed they did just what the angel told them to do. Hey guys, Jesus is alive. He's going before you to Galilee. There you're going to see Him. The evidence led them to believe that Jesus was raised. What about the guards? How did they interpret the evidence? Well, remember that the Pharisees were afraid that the, the, the body would be stolen and it would look like Jesus had been, had been raised, as he said. By placing the guards there, the Pharisees ironically proved that the body couldn't have been stolen. And the guards know better than anyone that it wasn't. They know that the stone didn't budge until the angel budged it. And when he did, the body was gone. They know. Nobody came and stole that body. This is a bona fide miracle. Jesus rose from the dead. The guards knew that better than the women did. More significantly, look again at Matthew 28, 11 through 15. While they, while the women were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they dissembled with the elders and taking counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and told him, and, to, and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. First of all, the guard reported... As Matthew writes it here, all that had taken place, that alone indicates that they reported a resurrection because that's what Matthew described as taking place. Second, that the Jews told them to spread the very story that the guards were tasked with preventing, that is that the disciples stole the body, means that the truth was worse for the Jews than the lie, which is that Jesus was actually raised. So the Jews believe that Jesus was raised, which means that's what the guards told them. Further, the guards had to be paid to say something else. So both groups exposed to the same evidence. They come to the same conclusion. Jesus was raised from the dead. And did you know this is broadly true even today? 
Would you be surprised to find that a majority of American adults believe the, that the biblical accounts of the resurrection are completely accurate? A 2020 LifeWay study found that 66% believe the biblical account of the resurrection. The other 34% are almost evenly split between those who don't believe and those who aren't sure. Now that isn't everybody, but many today confronted with the evidence say, yes, Jesus was raised. Just like these two groups on the first resurrection Sunday. So, We've considered what the two groups have in common. But there are two crucial distinctions also that Matthew puts in front of us. Two crucial distinctions. And the first is, is that they have distinct objects of worship. Distinct objects of worship. One group saw Jesus and worshipped Him. And this goes back to the scene at the tomb. Though both groups saw the angel, the angel addressed only the women. The text mentions explicitly that the guards were fearful and trembling in verse 4, but then the angel says to the women, emphatically in, in the Greek text, you don't be afraid. You ladies, you don't be afraid. The, the, the guards are quaking. Hey, y'all don't be afraid. Why? He tells them why not to be afraid. Because I know that you seek Jesus. And, and it's clear from earlier in Matthew's, Matthew that these ladies were already devoted to Jesus. 2755 describes them as having followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him there. And unlike the disciples, unlike Jesus' inner circle, these women followed Jesus throughout his suffering. They were at the cross, they're there when he's taken down from the cross, they're there when he's buried. They are, in the truest sense, followers of Jesus. Perhaps that's why they get to be the first to see the empty tomb. And they get to be the first to herald the good news. And the first to see the risen Christ. Look at Matthew 28, 8-10 again. This is just after their encounter with the angel. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. You see, the, the women, they saw the empty tomb they believed that Jesus rose from the dead, but so did the guards. The guards believed in the resurrection. This is the distinction between the two parties. The women worshipped the resurrected Christ. They worshipped Him, which indicates they trusted in Jesus as their Savior and God. Likewise, also the eleven. Jump down to Matthew 28, 16 and 17. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed him. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. The women tell the disciples that Jesus was raised. The disciples come to Galilee, indicating they believed that Jesus was raised. That alone doesn't make them any different than the guards. The distinction here again is that they worshipped Jesus, which means they've trusted in Jesus as their Savior and their God. Now some are troubled, others confused, still others comforted by the fact that the that last phrase there in that verse, some of the disciples doubted. 
That word doubt, don't make too much of that. That word doubt denotes not intellectual disbelief, but the hesitation that's just natural to those confronted by a unique and seemingly impossible occurrence. So as they are worshiping Jesus, here's the idea, as they're worshiping Jesus, they're thinking, how can this be? They are not worshiping half-heartedly, thinking, I'm not sure about this. How can this be? One group saw and worshipped Jesus. One group worshipped false gods. One group saw and worshipped Jesus. The other group worshipped false gods. So the guards, who know better than anyone else, Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. They spread a lie that is not at all in their professional best interest. Do you know, do you know guards who let people steal things that they're guarding, they don't just get bad Yelp reviews in first century Palestine. It's, it's bad for their health. I mean, they, they can lose their lives for this kind of thing. So you, you don't just go spread a lie like that willy-nilly. The ESV says that the, the Pharisees gave them sufficient money. Would they spread a lie like that for sufficient money? The Greek text is a, is a bit more forceful. The original text says more literally, gave them considerable money tells us what these men were worshiping. These men were worshiping money instead of Christ. They gave them a lot of money. The guards' love of money was so strong that, that even though they know that a dead man who claimed to be the Son of God just rose from the dead and is walking around somewhere, they're going to lie and say that his body was stolen. And, and, I, and I believe that we're intended to see this coming. Remember back at the tomb, there's that earthquake. The, 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 the guards are quaking with fear, the original text says. Earthquake, they're quaking with fear. The angel says to the women, you don't be afraid. Implied is that the, 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 the guards, you, go, you guys go ahead and be afraid. You should be afraid. Why? Well, there's the explicit thing that the women were seeking Jesus. It's implied the guards were not. But, but, but there's an, an additional thing in, in, the, in the text here. In this place where Jesus has gone from death to life, Matthew points that out to us through the mouth of the angel. He, he, he's, he's not here. He is risen from the dead. In this very location, the guards went in the opposite direction. Did you count, catch that in verse 4? In their fear, they became like dead men. And I suggest that the text is signaling that the guards, they're going to believe that he was raised, but they're going to stay dead in their trespasses and sins because they seek and worship something other than Jesus. Likewise, the Jews, because they receive the news about the empty tomb, they come to the right conclusion that Jesus has been raised from the dead, but they don't worship him. They worship their power as they've been doing throughout this, this gospel. They are not going to admit that Jesus rose from the dead because then the people would no longer be under their thumbs. Perhaps worse than no longer having power over the people, they'd have to admit that they were wrong about Jesus to begin with. And they hate Jesus. And, and you know people do this today. It, it frequently is not so much that people don't see the truth about Jesus. For many, 
It's that they don't like what the truth about Jesus will mean for their other gods. They don't want to worship Jesus because worshiping Jesus will will necessarily mean surrendering all to follow Him. Jesus was kind to be very clear about this. In places like Matthew 16, 24, when He said to his, his, His disciples, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. You remember that rich young man in Matthew 19 who heard that message and he just couldn't do it because he had so much money. He left his money more than he wanted Jesus. And so he walked away from eternal life. And this is where part of the deception comes in. It's the self-deception part. These who worship something other than Jesus, though they know that he rose, they deceive themselves that life without Jesus and with their false gods will be better than life with him. But is that true? They'll find it's not. Were you paying attention as Pastor Jason read Psalm 16 this morning? Psalm 16, which is quoted in Acts 2. Where Peter says of those last couple of verses, you will not let your your servant's soul see Sheol, saying this is a picture of the resurrection. Well, verse 4 of Psalm 16 says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. In, In pushing away Jesus so that I can have my false gods. I'm not having, more, I'm not having more, more fun. I'm not having more joy. I'm not having fuller life. But my sorrows are multiplying. These two groups, they had distinct objects of worship. Some worshipped Jesus, while others worshipped false gods. There's a second crucial distinction that Matthew puts in front of us, and that is they had distinct contents of proclamation. Distinct contents of proclamation. One group proclaimed the risen Christ. And again, it's, it's assumed that the women did this because the disciples showed up in Galilee. But look down at Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, to the eleven, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The risen Christ himself charges his disciples to make disciples here in what we call the Great Commission. Jesus is calling the eleven to be disciple-making disciples. And and by extension, calling all those who follow him to be disciple-making disciples. And in this disciple-making endeavor, they and we will be going, baptizing, and teaching. Going meaning spreading far and wide this good news over all God's earth. Baptizing, that is leading people to faith in Christ, calling them to profess that faith publicly, and affirming that profession of faith by baptizing them into the church in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
and teaching, teaching them to obey Christ. This goes back to that worship, that worship thing. Following Jesus isn't mere cognitive assent to facts about Him. It's a trajectory of life whereby a person lives for Him, believing everything that Jesus has taught and obeying everything that Jesus has commanded. Devoted disciples give their lives to carrying out that commission. One group proclaimed the risen Christ. The other group proclaimed a lie. If Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20 is, is the great commission, we might call Matthew 28, 13 through 15 the terrible commission. Look at 13 through 15 again where the Pharisees say to the guard, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now it seems that Matthew intends for us to compare these two commissions. There are numerous words common to both sections. We miss some of this depending on which translation we're using. And I won't point out all of those commonalities. But the most striking of them is this. Jesus tells, tells the disciples... Teach them to do all that I've commanded you. Look at verse 15 again. It reads very literally about the guards. Taking the money, they did all as they were taught. It's the same Greek word in both of these commissions. You see, Matthew is using language to portray the guards as something like disciple-making disciples of the Jewish leaders. The Pharisees taught these guards, to lie about Jesus. And they went off to do just that. And their disciples spread that same lie. That's why he gives, that's why he gives this word, this explanation. This lie has been perpetuated up to this day. And we read in Justin Martyr saying that, that even unto the second century, this very lie is still being circulated. Disciple-making disciples of liars terrible commission we have we have devoted disciples worshiping and proclaiming christ and deceived deceivers worshiping and proclaiming a lie it, it should be obvious matthew's not just reporting the news certainly he's delivering facts but his desire is to show that the life death and resurrection of jesus christ puts all of us in a position to make a decision Will I follow Jesus Christ in faith and worship or not? And, and this is not something that Matthew is just getting to in, in chapter 28. If you were here during the Christmas season, we saw this as how Matthew started his gospel. Matthew chapter 1, Matthew, Ma Matthew puts Jesus forward and says, here's who Jesus is. And then chapter 2, bang, he divides, he, he shows how the coming of Christ divides all people into two groups. Those who worship and those who reject. Re read chapter 2 and refresh your memory. There in chapter 2 of Matthew, everyone recognized that Jesus was the King of the Jews. Not just the wise men, but Herod also. Everyone recognized the truth. The distinction was that the wise men worshipped while Herod rejected and sought to kill him. Beyond just informing us that Jesus is indeed who he says he is and that he did indeed rise from the dead like he said he would, this passage, indeed this whole gospel, shows 
that at the end of the day, the difference between those who live eternally with Christ and those who die eternally in hell is not so much their access to truth, but what they do with it. And we may wonder, how can it be that, that, that so many say, yes, I believe what the Bible says about the resurrection and yet not worship Jesus, not turn from their sin, not follow Him in faith. How is that possible? How can one believe a man rose from the dead and not follow him? How can that happen? Well, we, we, we could give numerous biblical answers. What Matthew wants us to see is that while most understand completely what has happened, they just don't want Jesus as their God. They buy the lie that life without Jesus is better than life with Jesus. And they are therefore self-deceived and they continue in that self-deception and they work to deceive others as well. The resurrection, indeed the entire incarnation of Jesus Christ divides those confronted by it into two groups, devoted disciples or deceived deceivers. Which are you? Some good news, and this is great news. Great news. You can be the latter this morning. You can be a deceived deceiver right this second and not stay that way. You may not even realize what good news that is. I pray that you would. Raise your hand if you're a former deceived deceiver and now devoted disciple. Raise, your, raise, your, raise those hands high. Yeah. Yeah, praise God for that. Hallelujah. Because we all started on that side. Every one of us started out on that side. But by God's grace, there is hope. And it's a wonderful thing that in this passage, those who seek Jesus, see Jesus. And if you recognize this morning, I'm not a follower of Jesus Christ, but I want to be. Seek Him by confessing your sins to Him. Confessing your desire to turn from those sins. To turn from your false gods and to worship Jesus alone. De declare to Him, Je Jesus, my only hope before the Holy Judge on the last day is to be covered by Your righteousness and to have my sins paid for by Your atoning death. Will You please save me from the wrath to come? And will You please let me be Yours forever? Seek Jesus, and, and you will be saved. You will see Jesus. A minute ago, when I asked for that show of hands, asking for former deceived deceivers, current devoted disciples, I, I, wonder, I wonder how many of us, if we're being honest, we're maybe a little tentative. But disciple, maybe not so devoted distracted disciple is that, is that, does that count I want to worship Jesus alone but I still struggle with false gods and my, my disciple making discipleship that isn't exactly stellar you know a lot of us maybe most of us if not all of us in that boat because 
we are on the road of sanctification toward Christ-likeness. And the prescription for us is not all that different from the one who is outside of Christ. We need to seek Jesus. We need to repent of sin. We need to trust in Him, not unto conversion, but unto growth in godliness. And the risen Christ is eager for us to do that. You, you know, as, as Jesus gave the great commission here in Matthew 28, He was under no illusions who He was talking to. You know, these guys, these guys all of them abandoned Him just a few days earlier. In, in his, his hour of, of, of deepest need, they, they all fled. And, and they're going to make mistakes in the future. But it would be in His power applied in them that they would be able to carry out this enormous task that He's just put in front of them. Enormous task that He's put in front of them. And I think that's why the Great Commission ends the way that it does. Look at how Jesus ended this commission. Aren't you glad that the Lord didn't say, this commission is with you always? This heavy responsibility is on your shoulders forever. You're carrying this thing until it's done. No, the, the, the Lord's last words, very familiar. If you, if you read through the whole Bible, if you could read the Bible in an afternoon, it would be wonderful because you'd see this. His, his words to them, very similar to His words to Moses, Joshua, Jeremiah, and others, right after He gives to them enormous tasks, He says, I am with you always. And that's not just a statement of, of where He's going to be. He's not just saying, hey, if you need me. That is a statement of empowerment. I'm giving you this crazy thing to do. I'm with you. I'm with you. Seek Jesus. Worship Jesus. Proclaim Jesus. Because praise God Almighty. He's alive. Let's pray. Father, like an old favorite song, it's wonderful to hear these things again. And we pray that you would give us hearts that love to hear it over and over. We thank you that all of it is true. We pray, Lord, that you would impress upon us how, how, how deeply these things speak to all of history and to our own identities we pray, Father, for those among us who, who don't know the Lord Jesus, who have never turned from their sin to, to confess all of their offenses against you, to confess their need for a Savior and to, to ask for salvation in His name, to, to, to repent, to, to plead for forgiveness in Christ. We, we pray for them in this moment, Lord, that that you would do them a great kindness by allowing them to feel the weight of their sin and that 
this passage would, would help them to see there is hope only in Jesus Christ. Would you please move them to, to repent and trust in Him alone? For the rest of us, Father, please move us to greater faithfulness. Move us to deep joy in the reality that we serve not a man who said he would be raised, but whose body can be found in a tomb, but a Christ who lives and who is seated at your right hand this very moment, who intercedes for us. Please remind us, Father, day by day, that even that is not the end of the story, but we look forward to a day when he will return for us and will spend eternity in his presence. Please impress these things upon our hearts, Father. Grant us to live accordingly, seeking Him, worshiping Him, and proclaiming Him until He comes. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.